Hi, everyone. From New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is On with Kara Swisher, and I'm Kara Swisher. And I'm Naima Reza. If you listen to the show, if you like the show, um, and if you've heard our work over the last couple of years, you've really been hearing and liking the work of a woman named Blakeney Schick. She's been our senior producer, our colleague, and a good friend. Um, She was our first hire here at New York Magazine and Vox when we started this show, when Karen and I started this show a month in. And she worked with us for a year before that at New York Times on our show Sway. She did, and tragically, she passed away on Monday, July 24th, after suffering a sudden cardiac arrest, entirely unexpected, um, because she's very healthy. She ran marathons and was, in fact, preparing for the New York Marathon later this year. And she was only 40 years old when she died. Yeah, she would have turned 41 on, on Sunday August 6th. And so we wanted to do, in her passing and on her, what would have been her 41st birthday, an episode in honor of her. Um, And in a moment, we're going to bring on Esther Perel to talk with us about this grief that we're experiencing and making friends and families are experiencing, but really everyone experiences in their life. Mm -hmm. Um, But before we get there, we just wanted to tell you a little bit more about who Blakeney is. Yeah, and at work, I'll start with work. She was a really fantastic producer. She produced some of the best episodes we've done and was quite enthusiastic about them, including recently Jake Tapper. Um, But she also did Hillary Clinton, Brooke Shields, Walter Isaacson, Patrick Graden Keefe. She was very excited about doing, uh, we were hoping to interview Martina Navratilova, and she was super excited about that. She she liked to try to make us do sports content, even though we know nothing about sports. sports. She likes it, so... (laughs) We will do Martina Navratilova. For her. Yeah. Um, And she had a very storied career in the audio community before that. She spent 10 years at The Low Page Show at Public Radio. She also worked on shows like Adulting, The Takeaway. She was a fantastic audio journalist and a fantastic producer. She was an avid marathon runner and also a yoga instructor. Um, I think she even taught Mike Birbiglia. I don't know if you know that. I didn't know Uh, that. Yeah. Um, One of our guests on this show. But what made her really great in the the word that always comes to mind when I think about Blakeney is just cared. She cared so much um, about everything she did. Mm -hmm. She was so diligent, so disciplined, so compassionate, so caring. She cared about the work we made. She cared even more about the people who made it. Um, She really noticed everything. And she cared in every aspect of her life. And, you know, every person on our team, we we benefited from that every day. She cared about the people she taught Mm -hmm. um, and the causes she ran for. And... um, it's been a big loss. It's been a huge loss. But in that spirit, we didn't want to do just a memorial service here. We want to do something that will helps our listeners and helps ourselves, too. Um, but to talk about something that's important, which is how you deal with loss at work of someone, your colleague, um, and someone, uh, you know, so tragically young um, and yeah. unexpected. And the the work aspect is, is interesting mm-hmm. because we live in a society where we spend so much time at work. Blakeney was my colleague. She was my right hand Mm -hmm. uh, for the last couple of years, my deputy. But she was also a friend. Mm -hmm. She was probably one of the people I speak to most in a day. Mm -hmm. So natural to pick up the phone and call her even now. Um, And you know all the details about somebody. You form these kind of unique relationships. And yet, we live in a society where there's a boundary. There's supposed to be a boundary at work. Yeah, but it there often isn't. doesn't feel but, like there is. But one. there isn't. I mean, I, I I don't like to use the term family at work because I think it's overused in a lot of ways. But I think of a community or a town or something like that of people that you rely on throughout your life. And you know, and you have these different communities through your life. I've had a Recode community. We mm-hmm. had the Wall Street Journal community, the Washington Post community. Some of people have just scattered to the winds in a lot of ways uh, over the course of a career. But many many people stay with you and have been critically important to your career development or as a friend at work or someone to gripe about the bosses with or whatever. So it's really is a very primary relationship and that's important. I hired Blakeney when my father was in hospice just days before he passed away and she's been with me like every day of work since then. Mm -hmm. And I think just everything that this show has been and our last show Sway, she has been such a pivotal part of making that work and our team work. Mm -hmm. You're going to hear questions from our team as well in a moment. But she... She's been the rock of the show that you guys listen to. Yep, absolutely. Every day. And we've been thinking a lot about how to honor her. Um, we thought as someone who's constantly wanting to help others and be, been a rock that, you know, you never know how to how to deal with someone's loss, especially when it's so sudden and there's no preparation. But we wanted to make a show that would help people, that would be a rock mm-hmm. for them. And our guest for that is psychotherapist, author, and a friend, mm-hmm. Esther Perel. Yeah. Um, 
And she's known mostly for her work about relationships, but she's done a lot about grief, a lot about grief, um, particularly through the pandemic. Uh, But even her own story, she was born to Holocaust survivors, and grief has been a big part of her life and I think part of what makes her look for the things that make you feel alive. 100%. I mean, there's a famous quote that um, life is fatal. I think it's... I can't remember the singer, but it's, it's something like that. Like, like, no matter what, how you struggle and strive, you never get out of this life alive. And we don't think about that a lot. And yeah. the pandemic has been a lot like that. I've known a lot of people who have died um, during the pandemic and also at work over my many years. And so you can't discount um, grief anywhere it is that you have loss. Yeah. Um, and so it's important to talk about it. Yeah. And now let's bring in Esther Prowl. Esther, thank you for joining us today. Um, You're known for your work on relationships of all kinds, including romantic and um, professional, but recent years you've become also someone who's talked a lot about grief. Um, Can you you explain how those topics are connected? There is nothing more significant to relationships than the addition and subtraction Mm -hmm. of new members. So meetings and losses... Connections and disconnections are the bookends of all relationships. Grief is about loss. It's about longing. It's about interruption, disruption, endings, premature endings, anticipatory endings. But it's about the end of something, which means the diminishment of a member. Mm -hmm. There is no way of looking at relationships without including grief. Grief also is the consequence of any choice. When you make a choice, you deal with what you didn't choose, you deal with the loss, and you deal with the grief that you have over that loss. Mm. But people have a hard time thinking about grief. Yes, more so today. Mm. Why is that? Why is that? Because we are often given uh, an illusion of control. Destiny is in your own hand. You make things happen yourself. Uh, if you've been taught and told that you can hold change on everything. to things, change things, make things happen, etc., you are less prepared for the unpredictable, the uncertain, and the losses that come with it. This loss that we and others in Blakeney's life are experiencing is a sudden loss. It was a loss that you couldn't be prepared for in so many ways because it was a healthy person, a young person, someone you don't expect to go. And her father recently shared with me a quote uh, from Jamie Anderson that comes to what you're saying, that grief is the corollary of love in some way. And the quote was, grief is just love with no place to go. Um, I think it's a beautiful sentiment. We hear this kind of grief is unexpressed love. And joy and sorrow is two sides of a coin. That's a Khalil Gibran thing. But I feel like every, every time I've experienced someone passing, it still feels revelatory to me about the relationship. Like I learn something about the relationship, about the meaning, about the person through the loss. And I wonder if there's a way that we can be more present in that joy or, or, or you know, notice it and cherish it more. Without so, waiting for grief. It's interesting. You're saying three different things in this one okay. sentence, right? First is the connection of grief and love. Mm-hmm. I don't think that there is love that can truly exist without a fear of loss. Hmm. The same, they, they, they are yeah. interconnected. The, the more connected, the more attached, the more you hold on to someone and the more you live with the parallel or the corollary fear that yeah. what would happen if you lost them mm-hmm. it could be a pet it could be a child it could be a friend you know the deeper the connection the bigger the fear of loss but it doesn't occur to you sometimes when it's a young person that you could even lose them that's why those deaths are even more kind of cataclysmic in our conception of the world. We, mm. we accept that an old person will die. Yeah. We accept that the passage of time brings you closer to mortality. We don't know how to connect youth and mortality. How can a child who still has their whole life in front of them, how can this woman who is just 40 and has her whole life in front of her, that is unfair. And that's why we are even less prepared to it, because it shakes your kind of conception, your existential conception of the natural order of things. That is not natural. That is not the way things are to happen. 
I think all deaths can be painful. That's not it. But there is something about the acceptance of death when it's the end of a life mm -hmm. versus the lack of acceptance or the refusal to accept because, because it also touches us. Mm -hmm. I mean, that you can just like that vanish. Mm -hmm. That could be me. Hmm. That could be you. Which and it's intolerable to live with that awareness. Yeah, that fear. Because you don't want to become fearful. You want to live alive. Because it's the denial of death by Brecker. You cannot live hmm. if you are too aware of death. Well, I, you need some awareness. I'm but not so sure of that. Kara, you're talking <laughs> to someone, Kara, by the way, is so, is so aware of death that I'm she obsessed. sends me death quotes. She gets an I'm app obsessed. called We Croak, yeah. and she gets these yes, quotes Yes, my boys that. read that I too, listen to it too. It's great. Um, I, I, I would push back a little bit because my dad died when I was five, so that's the most terrible thing because mm -hmm. when you're five, you only know two people, your mother and your father, right. essentially. And so half, it says if half your friends, friends die or half your community. Um, so I think about it a lot. Everything I've done has been informed by death. And I think about it all the time when I make decisions of living, like whether to have more children, which I have quite a few, um, or anything else. Everything I do was, ah, I'll be dead in 50 years or 20 years or two days or whatever. And I think it's informed everything that I've done, interestingly. So I would say the same thing about me right. from a very different angle. But I think I was saying something else. So You say, you know, this acute awareness of loss and, and, and of the fragility of life and of losing your father very young is, an, is a central axis of how you organize your life. So that when you have children, you do life-affirming acts mm -hmm. that beat back death, mm -hmm. <laughs> that push it back a little bit. And you say it's at the core of my awareness. I don't, I don't think Brecker doesn't mean that we don't have the awareness, but it's like... Awareness is not the same as a fear of. Yes. Mm -hmm. If you are in the grip of the fear of something, then you won't take risks, you won't take actions, you won't take right. chances yeah. because it can be a paralyzing fear. Mm -hmm. And so he doesn't say, you. The, the, of course, you need an awareness of death. It is mm -hmm. that awareness that propels us into creativity and, and art and children and mm -hmm. all these hopeful acts that... Allow that make death uh, the awareness of death mm. tolerable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and part of what you discuss when you said before about you know when you discover new things about a person that you just lost yeah. is because absence is a very revelatory space. Yeah, you mm -hmm. learn so much when the person is not there of how you relate to them, of the place they had in your life, of the things that you shared with them, mm -hmm. of how you thought you think they would have reacted, and now yeah. you begin to fill in the gaps yourself. Yeah. And and not and about the person and also the meaning of that relationship mm -hmm. to you. Yes. Like I didn't right I didn't realize until Blakeney until I was visiting my mother just days ago and yeah. it was the day before Blakeney passed that oh I was in this room in my mom's house when I hired Blakeney. I was day oh. it was when my father was in hospice. Mm -hmm. It was days and when she came back to work, she was the person that was with yes. me that whole time. I, I had no realization of this in the two years and a half that we've worked together. That that was the case, but I, I realize that now. And then you start to make all kinds of associations. Mm. You know, you fill in the gaps. You, yeah. you remember all the many places in which that person is connected to your life. Yeah. And it's really a kind of a, a taking off the threads mm. by, one by one of how much a per when a person enters your life, they, they occupy so many spaces. Yeah. I wish our listeners could see you right now because mm. the way Esther is almost like peeling back <laughs> yeah. a beautiful banana <laughs> with yeah. many shards. Yeah. But it, this This idea of revelation and, and what happens a struggle to make meaning from someone's death is a question that one of our producers, Christian Castro Rosal, had raised. And I want to play his question. Blakeney was good to her core. And I didn't realize it until I stepped back and took stock of who she was. But I don't think there's many people like her who are, are genuinely good, uh, honest, earnest, fair, responsible, reliable people who, who cross all their T's and dot all their I's like she did. And I'm certainly not one of those people. Um, so to me, her death has been a, a very harsh reminder of how cruel life, how cruel and unfair life can be. She deserved much better. And meanwhile, there's people who hurt other people who die happily of old age. So my question is, how do I accept that fact without becoming cynical or nihilistic? Who says you have to accept it? Mm -hmm. hmm. <laughs> That was my first thought. You know, some people think all deaths are tragic and some people think, no, there are gradations. Hmm. You know, 
Seriously, I think that there are people who look at death in a more even way. And so it's it's all death are. Mm-hmm. And then there are sometimes, and I definitely I think of that sometimes myself, I think not all death is equal. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a totally rational thought. I mm-hmm. can't justify this right. way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Why does this woman who is incarnates goodness, you know, get to, get to die, you know, when this other person who either is not a kind person or is just miserable in life. Why wasn't that person then going yeah, first? But it's not accounting. But it's not. It's it, These are just ways that you're trying to deal with reality hmm. that you find so unacceptable. And it's unacceptable because it's painful. Yeah. Because you feel like, you know, on some level, maybe Christian says like, it's, you know, she was, she didn't deserve to die. Is yeah. what he says? And other people... I've more deserve more well, to well, do. Even just the God first wanted, God yeah. wanted them. That's why that I've I heard that when my dad God want he was so good. God brought him home. Yeah, and it was um, and then the people who don't die, they're like God doesn't want you. But I, I think, it's all the same. It's, yeah. we have yeah. mul- a number of very historical cultural narratives. Every society, every civilization has them that helps you make sense of the unsensical. Why do bad things happen to good people? Mm -hmm. It is one of the central of the three tenets of all religions is to help you deal with the suffering, the unacceptable loss, etc., the tragic. And, you know, what he's asking is a little different. He says, how do I accept it without becoming cynical? Cynical, yeah. And I think one of the things he's describing is that Blakeney was not cynical. Mm -hmm. So it's about Christian... You know, at asking himself, I mean, there's many ways I could answer this, but one thing I would say to Christian is, can you imagine taking a little piece of her and bringing it inside of you mm-hmm. and carrying that? Yeah. Because what she showed you is that there's a way of being less defended without being burned. And you are cynical, which is defended, often as a way to not be burned. Mm-hmm. So honor her by Trying a little bit of that. I think that's beautiful. It's <laughs> an excellent piece there, of advice. The question also is about, it is about that. It's also about making meaning, what you said. Uh, we have all these cultural societal constructs to make meaning of death. And yet, when it happens, and you're just struck there on the floor in like shock of your loss, it doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense. And there's this desire to make meaning out of death. Is that healthy, our desire to make meaning See, It's out not of a death? matter of healthy, it's human. We are meaning-making meaning, meaning creatures. It's totally human. I don't think we can live otherwise. Mm. And so over time, we need to make sense. Why did this person go so soon? Why did this person, if they only had stayed five more minutes at home, they would have avoided the car crash? Mm -hmm. Why would, you know, we try to rearrange If only is one way, you know, sometimes it's how do I give meaning to this loss? Is it about being part of the parents against drunk driving? Is it? Yes, it it helps you. Making meaning gives you a sense of coherence, Mm. a sense for action, a sense for for reaction and a sense for connecting with others who have experienced something similar, because one of the most important pieces of bereavement and death and and mourning is the level of isolation. It yeah. feels like nobody else can understand your grief, can relate yeah. to it. Like it's it's so insulating. You know, you talked about your father. I remember it. But I also can imagine you on at some moments because you were very close to him as well. It's not yeah. just that he died. It's that you lost this important, important connection, this real, you know, beautiful relationship. And there is a sense that, you know, you listen to other people who are not getting along with their parents and you think that person is going to understand me mm-hmm. when I had this incredible connection with my dad. And so it becomes very insulating. And the most important thing in the making of meaning is also connecting with other yeah. people. There, Every religion found a way to, exp- to create mourning as a collective experience. It isn't meant to be done alone. And this is important for the workplace. Yeah. 
we saw that in Blakeney's life. People came together in her in, in this sudden event and her hospitalization and all parts of her life were connecting. And it was in some way a beautiful thing to see this community come out of it, a community of Blakeney, really. Did you all know each other? We didn't. I mean, I got on the phone with her cousin and her friend from school and we all knew of each other because Blakeney always told stories with names. So you knew, mm, you know, so she, nice. I would know who she went on that trip to Ireland with five years ago or 10 years ago and whose wedding it was. She told stories that had characters and places and she was a fantastic storyteller. That's what she did on our show. Mm-hmm. And, but, um, but let's talk about the work thing. Cause which is, cause one of the things that, um, is important is that at work, we have so much connection with people at work, even though we try to keep it work, keep it at work, that kind of thing. So can you talk a little bit about um, that, that the dichotomy between loss at work and loss in, say, your friends and your family, even though you spend a lot of your time at work or, or you have many connections at work? I mean, it, it really comes down to what is the culture at work, right? Mm-hmm. And... And the culture is, uh, it, it's as much about the births, the birthdays, mm-hmm. the weddings or the engagement ceremonies mm-hmm. of any sorts or the losses. It's basically to what extent does work become a place where people manifest the life cycle transitions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've had a, in this loss a real community of loss at work. We're all, we're, it, it's work is not isolating. It's also weird because it's not a place you can go to escape from grief in mm-hmm. this situation for our team. But we have, you know, um, Christian actually just became a father mm-hmm. and he was out on paternity leave when this happened. And so as a team, we were experiencing these two very different emotions at once. But also I think that the bigger question on to like a more general question of work is that there's a Work has become, you've written a lot about work as identity, and work has become more and more a part of our life and how we define ourselves, the identity economy. At the same time, there's a sanitization of work, you know, what work should be. And even in the making of this show, there was conversation about, well, we should keep this episode professional, even though it feels so deeply personal to every one of us, because you make podcasts, you know, we spend every day together. We work 60, 50, 60 hours a week, you know, together, um, 40, 50, 60 hours a week together, and we... And, and so how do we reconcile the personal connections at work and, and not drop boundaries? Or should we? I don't know that there is a set answer for this. I have an inclination. Mm-hmm. I, am, I, am, I lean towards something, but it's also because of who I am, what I do, the kinds of environments that I work in. Um, I can I I think I can imagine even when you say work even if you're in a big corporation you have your little team mm-hmm. yeah. mm-hmm. and so it's really about the team generally in that response I happen to think that if in a mature way and mature doesn't mean boundary mm-hmm. <laughs> mature means that you you there is a way in which people t- say I'm having a really rough day I miss her I would be turning to her at this mm. moment if I had this problem she would have had she would have known what to do or do you ever think about her or uh, how do we reorganize this you know what do we do with her digital archive you know do, do do we call the parents to come and get the stuff do the parents want the stuff right. do they want it immediately do they, there's so many aspects to how and I think that the more you hush these kind of things, um, the more you create an environment of that is placid, um, but also placating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, it's not good. I, I, look, you, we live in a world that, that wants to claim authenticity everywhere, but then you go and you check where the places where it really needs to happen. Mm. Is it actually there? Yeah. Mm. But, know, but there's been a real push for work not to be that. And you're not supposed to bring your... There was bring yourself whole work, and then it's like, don't bring so much. Well, I, 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 I will answer to you like this. You bring your whole self to work, mm-hmm. no matter what. It mm-hmm. may be conscious or unconscious. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. you're... It's, I, call them, I call this the unofficial resume, right? Mm-hmm. Your relationship history comes with you to work, and it will determine exactly Christian's response versus Naima's response versus Yukara's yeah. response. Because you, you know, it is a whole life that determines this how you're dealing with this loss in the moment but you are leaders and you can determine you have the possibility of saying we're going to have a meeting together we're going to talk about her Mm. we're going to cry if the tears come Mm -hmm. we're not going to pretend you know Mm -hmm. that that to be stoic is to be Mm -hmm. 
And we continue to work an hour later. Yeah. It's not like this is going to suddenly, you know, if if a tear sheds, we're going to have a, a tsunami and nobody's going to be able to function. That's yeah. not actually the way it works. It's more likely that when things are repressed, that they're going to find a way out because they have to be expressed somehow yeah. and that the people are going to start acting out or be more absent or have all kinds of somatic symptoms. Yeah, that's a perfect segue to a question um, from another of our producers, Megan Burney. Um, she... She's one of our colleagues who joined the team uh, just months ago and reported directly to Blakeney. Uh Blakeney was her manager. Uh, Maybe we can play a clip of that. I found myself sometimes feeling awkward or uncertain about how to feel and act around the passing of a colleague. It's not like grieving a friend or family member because I don't know what is appropriate. Simple acts that I do for a family member or friend now feel like I could be overstepping or like those feelings and actions are meant for Blakeney's family and friends who deserve space to mourn and need not be reminded of this grief by my action. At the same time, when I've been in grief, I found it quite healing to hear how much my loved one meant to others. I just don't know what is right. More than anything, I don't know where to put all of these feelings and emotions. Yeah, wow. Mm-hmm. That's something. It's really complicating. I mean, work. to me, being a, the first thing I think is you have all the right questions. Uh, those, those are the questions, and they don't have an answer. There is no clear, you know, code for this. It's, it is sensitive. It is personal. In your case, you really like to know that that person was loved. And maybe you'll find out that that's the case for her family. Maybe you find out differently. I think the main piece is not to be afraid to find out. Well, she felt like her grief was an imposition or that she's, you know, that kind of way. So what, what advice would you give to someone working through those kind of feelings? That it's not an imposition or... It's to check. Mm -hmm. It's to find out. It's to find out. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I... Do you... You know, the extent to which people want you to come and talk to them Mm -hmm. or don't want you and come to talk to them, you don't know necessarily in advance, especially in a workplace, you don't know them Mm -hmm. and you don't know the family. You know, the work is not a family. (laughs) So you go to the people and you just say, you know... Um, can I help? Can I help? I would love to bring to be help uh, useful. Do you want food? Do mm. you want flowers? Do you want us to create a memorial for her? You know what? And then the parents can say this we want, this not at all. No, we don't yeah. want anybody in the house at this moment. Yes, we need people all the time because we can't mm. bear the silence yeah. that surrounds us. It's it's you can't answer the question without asking the people right. who can help right. you answer mm-hmm. that question. And also there's just different, I feel like I come from a culture where there's very few boundaries. You have to show up, and if people turn you away, they can turn you away, but you show up. Yes, but you see, you, that's where you are different from Megan in a way, right? Because you say, I have a culture, and my culture is very clear on how you handle yeah. this. Therefore, I adhere to my code. With that code, I go, and I don't question myself. And, and if I am if I know that it's in a position, if I find out, then I then retreat. You yeah. But you're not asking yourself, what do I feel need or should do? Yeah. You have a clear code have a way. from yeah. your culture that tells you how to do it, and with that certainty, you enter. And, when yeah. people don't have that, they well, feel they like... Feel impolite. They feel impolite. I think that's what I. That, you know, I don't want to feel bad themselves because someone is suffering. Yes, more. but they don't have. They don't have the certainty. Mm-hmm. What they don't have is a code. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Megan is asking, what is the proper code? code? And so, Naima has a code. Mm-hmm. She may find out that these people live by a different code, mm-hmm. but she goes with the code. When you don't have a strong cultural or religious or interpersonal text on which to rest, then you find yourself grappling to come up with answers that usually cultures have given you. Especially when it's a work thing, as she noted, as Megan yeah. noted, because she didn't know her place. That's right. Yeah. Her, That's right. But spot. what should be the co- clue to that code? If you don't have a cultural code, is the clue the strength of your feeling? The strength of, is that the clue? I mean, I, I think it for, could be. That's a great question. I mean, this is... The struggle of individualism is, mm-hmm. is, do I make decisions based on my feelings? 
Yeah. Do you make decisions based on century-old practices with values also and beliefs? Also, feelings. Both. Yes, yeah. but the feelings mm -hmm. are connected to a script that says, when people are in mourning, you go. Mm. Mm -hmm. You don't knock at the door to see if they want you to come. You don't impose on them to know what they don't know in a period of grief. Yeah, you don't, you don't you even don't impose know. the question on them. That's you just right. show up with food. I do think food. work does impose a, st a stronger thing. And I think Megan's got a point. It's like you don't quite know because you don't mm -hmm. know quite your place. But one of the things that was interesting that happened someone at a work thing uh, whose husband suddenly died, um, no one would say anything to her and she knew they wouldn't say anything to her, especially at work. And I remember running into her, not a good friend, but a good, worked with a lot. And I said, well, that sucked. And she's like, thank you for saying it. Sucked. Yes. Because it was really interesting because everyone was like, you'll be okay. It'll be fine. And she didn't want that. That's it was right. very interesting. But at work, they felt that that was the only thing they could say. No. I think you can, and neither do you need to restrict yourself just to the, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. It's, this must be such a shock. This yeah. is such a big loss. Mm -hmm. I can't be, I can't begin to know what you are experiencing, but I'm here for you. Mm -hmm. um, I hope you find the solace and the strength with people mm -hmm. that surround you to go through such a difficult thing. You, you, you know, this is not a culture that knows to address death and no. loss. This and being work, this being Western culture. No, U.S. work culture, U.S. culture. <laughs> that's what you mean. This okay. instance, I yeah. I tend to think more of of the U.S. It's like the the, tra the tragic is not, you know, you have to go to the poets. Yeah. <laughs> to mm -hmm. and work becomes the 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 quintessential environment where people tiptoe around this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's always it's gonna be good. You'll mm -hmm. get through this. You sickness get back too, on your you feet. Yes, too. yes. Yeah. It's nine eleven was the same thing. Yeah. You know, everything is all right. Go mm -hmm. back in the you know, instead of no, this must be so difficult, so painful, so you bereft. Yeah. You know, and either I went through it too or you know, you just ask every day, you know, how is it today? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You, what people don't like is to feel that you're so afraid to touch them as if they have the plague. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that you have to basically make them comfortable because right. they're so uncomfortable yeah, it about is. you. It's interesting. When yeah. I had a stroke, it almost died. People either said nothing, which was kind of ridiculous, or overshared, like way overshared. Yeah. Like, and told you all their stories. Or wanted to know all the details. Yeah. And I'm very private about stuff like that. And it was really, it was nothing in between. It was really mm. kind of fascinating, especially at work. I want to ask a question about work, which is that work for many people is often a place they kind of retreat to when they're suffering from grief, that it becomes an yes. escape. But I have found that, you know, in periods of loss, it can be a distraction. It can be a place that feels certain, gives me that sense of control. Mm -hmm. um, but here, it's like the work is the grief for everybody, for myself, grieving a colleague and a friend, for our colleagues who are grieving a colleague and a friend. Better. I mean, better in the sense that you have each other. Yeah. And, you know, what needs to really be, what needs to happen is there needs to be a general sense given by you about, what we accept here, it's not just if it's cr you cry, you cry. It's also, you know, at some point you need to replace this person. Mm -hmm. When does the, it's a lot of issues have to do with timing. And, and yeah. the, in, a, in a healthy system, you have different timing. Some people are ready to move much faster than others. Some people want to linger there and continue to hold on to the connection. And they don't want to clean the office. They don't want whatever, you know. Yeah. It happens at home, too. Yeah, so a healthy system allows for the differentiation in the reactions of hmm. its members. Yeah. Yeah. So that instead of imposing one, and that tension that people usually think is a problem, yeah. that some want to be done with this and so you're still bringing this up and you know, other, yeah. that that tension is actually healthy for a system rather than a problem. I, I, and it needs to be normalized. Yeah. That needs to be said out loud. Mm -hmm. We're going through this amazing change, this really big change, this shift, this mm -hmm. loss, this, you know, and some of us are going to want to talk about it and some of us are not. Some yeah. of us will want to remember her out loud and some of us will do it privately. Some yeah. of, you mm -hmm. lay out the many facets of this grief and you normalize it. And the question of filling that role um, because of the oddity that we had a new father at the same time that this has happened, that we actually have had a great gift in Meg Cunane, 
is we have two Megan, Megan and mm-hmm. Meg on our okay. team. It's a bit confusing, but uh, we had somebody covering for the paternity leave who's able to stay with us to help, co- you know, oh, and was trained yes. by Blakeney and worked with Blakeney for a month. So it's been a real gift to us, I think, also to have this, mm-hmm. you know, team member with us. But I think do you feel at this moment mm-hmm. that it has brought you together, or do you feel that there are tensions? No, I feel very much that it's brought us together, but I think the question is, what's the meaning of the work? And I think that that's the question is navigate is like being productive mm-hmm. while feeling sometimes empty yes. or angry. And I almost, I think it's better actually, we play um, two clips of questions that the team, actually mm-hmm. this is going to be yeah. um, Christian and Megan. When something truly horrible like this happens, I usually feel numb and I only allow myself to experience brief glimpses of extreme sadness. And the numbness is useful because it allows Stop me to... Stop for a second. You're listening to his words. I heard his... Yes. And at oh. the end of the sentence, he choked. Mm-hmm. He's not numb. Yeah. No. Just so we establish that. Okay. Yeah. If you just listen to the words, you think he is not numb. He's not. He can barely swallow. Yeah. And now let's listen. When something truly horrible like this happens, I usually feel numb, and I only allow myself to experience brief glimpses of extreme sadness. And the numbness is useful because it allows me to carry on, but it's unsettling, and I feel like I've lost a little bit of myself. So how do I get rid of the numbness, or conversely, how do I allow myself to access the pain without falling apart? He says, I react and I'm numb. But he ends by saying, how do I allow myself to express something without falling apart? Yeah. He's, do not fall for the trap of the numbness. Mm-hmm. But he says numb with, with period, with glimpses of extreme, yeah, glimpses the, the of extreme fear, sadness. But the main fear he has is that the well... It'll fall apart. It'll fall apart. Yeah. If I hear a person speak like this, and he says, you know... What did he say after he, he swallowed? All I would do is... The I numbness would, is useful because it allows me to carry on. Yeah, I would put my hand on his shoulder. I would just hold his hand and look in his eyes. But he's and virtual in Maryland. Now what are you going to do? It's okay. I would say, look at me. Yeah. On Zoom, look at me. I'm putting my hand on your shoulder. Do you feel it? Or I'm holding your hand, whatever. You're anything but numb. This is beyond painful. And you're not going to fall apart. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Then you sit there and you wait. And you know what? He, if I, I don't know the man at all, but I have sat with people where the tear is streaming down their face, but they don't know it. Yeah. <laughs> Because they don't let themselves know it. They don't let themselves know it. It's yeah. like they're so... But meanwhile, it's all coming down. And then I just say, it's happening. I yeah. just let it come. Christian's a big heart. He's not he a numb is. guy. He is, really he is. Is. As journalists, you're kind of taught also to stay disconnected I to a know. story. So there is also <laughs> yeah. that. He's an excellent journalist and he's yep. been, you know, that numbness comes from... That perseverance and numbness is yeah, related. Yeah, 100%. Let's ask Megan Bernie's question. I only had the privilege of working with Blakeney for a few months. I joined the team in April, but in those three months, Blakeney and I worked very closely together. She was my manager, but more than that, my mentor. After many long hours together, Blakeney came to trust me with more and more responsibilities. I was so honored to earn her trust. I admired Blakeney and sought her approval every day. It didn't take me long to see that she and I approached work with the same passion and shared similar traits. My work on this show is tied so closely to Blakeney. I'm struggling to understand and accept how to continue the work without her. It feels different to me now. I know it does to us all, and I'm fortunate to have a team of wonderful people to lean on. I know that we'll all work to fill her shoes together, but I can't help but feel a lack of direction and motivation without Blakeney. I mean, this is the experience. You know, when when with mourning and with grief, you don't take it away. You just become a witness of it. 
It's like when people say, how will I continue to live if yes. you're not there? Yeah. Is that the person who is not there wanted to live as well yeah. and they will gain nothing from your mm-hmm. putting yourself in a premature grave. Yeah. So you do it yeah. because you do it for them. It's affirming also of life. You, you know, yeah. I will continue the work that you started and mm. did not finish. I will honor the mentorship and the teacher that you were for me every day. And the meaning that I will get is I will keep you alive by remembering you when I do those things. Yeah. Mm. I, I, that's how we memorialize and incorporate somebody. And mm. that's the meaning making. It's not I make, make meaning of the death. It's I make meaning of who you are. And every time I take on a thing, I may think, what would you have advised me? What would you say to me right yeah. now? How would you, how, what would you want me to improve? And you, you maintain a person's aliveness. Yeah. In that way. I love what you said before about taking a piece of the person and having it in you. And the truth is that Megan and Blakeney have pieces of each other. I think that they had some similarities, as she alluded to. And Blakeney mentioned that to me, too. She saw that. I think there's... Um, and I, you do that with your father all the time. I do, yeah. You do. Yeah. I hear you talk about him in out just like that my father this my father and it's because like he, he stays alive yes that's what we do that is the meaning making it's yeah. a, you incorporate the person you you know there is it's one of the greatest relationship is to have had an incredible teacher yeah. i mean that accompanies you for life yeah it does absolutely what, what, what in the short term advice and in the longer term for someone like megan when she says i can't help but lack feel a lack of direction and motivation without them there yes that is, that is That's so, your answer, yes. Yes, yes but it, what yes. do you expect? I'd be worried if you didn't have those feelings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'd be worried if you acted as if everything is normal. You just went through a major loss. This is normal. And you know what happens? After a while, you realize in the best of circumstances that it's been a few days now, and mm-hmm. then it's been a week, and then you start to feel like you have less of that feeling of, Sadness, overwhelming sadness, that emptiness, that void that, you know, you're, every time I enter the room, I realize you're not there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Slowly, I begin to enter the room and I know that you're not going to be there. Mm-hmm. And this takes time. And there's a reason why we have in most traditions a year-long mourning process. Mm-hmm. But what you said is really nice because a lot of people talk about grief as like a door that you can't open again. I've heard this analogy oh. used. People talk about it, but I think you can still <clears throat> enter the room. You can still enter the room. You enter the room, but you have a different reaction. Yeah. You know, you don't, you, it, you don't have, it, it, the tears don't instantly yeah. pour, right. come down. You right. begin to enter and you say, oh, I so wish you were there. Yeah. Where I, are you? How is it up there or down there? Or, you know, you talk to the dead. Mm. We talk to the dead. We talk to them as if they are alive. You know, we talk to them as if they're whispering in our ears. We... They stay with us in yeah. when in the good and in the bad, actually. Right. The, those two questions. But I can ask yeah, you. Yeah, go ahead. I asked, answered you, and I just said yes. <laughs> of course, she will feel mm-hmm. not motivated, and of course, she will feel that she has an incredible group of people to whom she mm-hmm. can say, mm-hmm. "It's hard to do this right now." My mm-hmm. mentor, my partner, my mm-hmm. colleague. But that's not going to make the feeling go away, and yet. To be able to share it with a supportive group of people who go through their own experience of this is what helps us more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't make it go away. The, you know, this idea that because I say it to you and you say something back to me, it suddenly is gone. No, no, no. she's going to live with this for months, mm-hmm. but it won't have the same intensity. That's why I say, yes, this is normal. Yeah. Yeah. There is nothing to do. But to understand that and to surround yourself. But I, but it is a really, I think there's two things I take from it. And one is a question for you, which is as a, man, as a manager, am I managing people who are processing this through different ways? We have a team of, you know, a few producers, engineers, fact checkers, many people that work on this show that make it every week. And and even the freelancers, Blake, one thing that was really exceptional about Blakeney is that she but always... She integrated the, the freelancers as if they were fully Yeah, you know this, I told you. No, but that I, I, she, I, 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 <laughs> you can feel it as how we describe her. I love that. You can. You already have a piece of her. But she really did. And even her father remarked this to me as something he had heard about her in her career. That she 
had remarkable respect and people who worked one day a week on our show or five days a week that for her, they were even. But I I think one is how do I create space for, as a manager, managers yeah. listening to this, how do you create space for everybody to go at their own pace? For You're, you're helping everyone go at their own pace. You want to grieve yourself and the work must go on. And sometimes it feels like an iron triangle, those three things. That's correct. And and look, if I answer you, I just yeah. want to be clear. I am very much like a tailor. I do fittings. Yeah. I don't have standard answers that apply to everything. It, I don't think it works like this. Yeah. So in your situation, I think that's right. You have work that needs to be done. You have your own personal experience. And then you have the diversity of responses in the team itself. You have probably a weekly meeting. Daily meeting, stand-ups. Okay. And in that meeting, you know, for the next two weeks, three weeks, we're going to take a few moments to just address this so Mm. that it's out there for whoever needs to. Is there anybody who had a thought, a question, you know, those those questions that you just recorded to me, they Mm. probably would have appeared in a meeting like that too. We don't have answers, but we are a, a group of people that make space for these experiences mm. so that we can go and do the work. Yeah. So that it does, we don't... Them. Yes, you yeah. express them. Is, does anybody here need anything specifically today, more support? Some of you are more able to keep the work going than others. Can you offer your support to those for whom this takes a little bit longer? So yes. you create these interactions. And after a week or two or three or four, whichever, you will see. Yeah. If nobody talks anymore, then you will say, look, once a month, or once a week, I just want us to name Blakeney. We name the name, and if anybody has anything to say, or a poem you want to read, mm. or a song we should listen to, doesn't just have to be speaking, yeah. you know, or a photo that you want to show, and then slowly it it becomes more spread out, yeah. and then it becomes an anniversary. Hmm. Once a year, mm-hmm. and this is what it leads and to. Those are hard. It, those are very hard. And you you wrote me something when my father passed. The first and the last are always the hardest. Yes. The last time you do everything and the first time you do everything. And that's why it's a year. It's a four-season thing mm. in which you remember the last time you did this and then the first time you did it without the person mm. there. And there's something extremely granular about that. The last time I made coffee for two <laughs> and the last, first time I made coffee for myself. Mm-hmm. But I think that the main thing I, I often say is the feelings that you're describing, the situations you're describing, the fact that there is these three poles that are all needing attention. This is the nature of the beast. Mm. This is not a problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's finish up by talking about coping, which is what Name is talking about. Um during the height of the pandemic, you talked about the concept called tragic optimism. Um, can you describe what that is for people? I reread Men's Search for Meaning. Oh, wow. Ah, Viktor Frankl. During the pandemic. Because he, you know, his idea that you tolerate death by making meaning mm-hmm. or, you know, and you survive better. Mm-hmm. You fight for something because you have a reason, you know. And all of these concepts became very relevant once again during the pandemic. And tragic optimism is that. It's the awareness of death that lives side by side Mm -hmm. with the things that bring you hope and Mm -hmm. joy and pleasure and connection. If you, you know, some people will not allow themselves to come close to others because they have experienced loss. See, you say, I make babies. Mm-hmm. I have children. I have experienced <laughs> I loss, but I have children. Mm-hmm. And you think this is the, the normal way. Mm-hmm. But there are people who do the exact opposite from mm-hmm. you. Yeah, I, I lost it. people, and therefore I make sure not to get too close to anybody. Protect so myself. I never I have to experience purpose. that thing again. I did it with thought. Okay. They do too. What? You I said I with... did it with thought because yes, I yes, didn't yes. have connection because when people lose a parent at a young age, they get, it's called highly functional. Yeah. And so nothing, but even earthquakes don't bother you. It's like, yeah, whatever, you know, that kind of thing. So that's, it was a purposeful thing. But when Carolyn had her surgery, she went by herself with I her did. brother. She yeah. didn't want everyone to be I don't want Just my brother. Yeah. Just your brother. But my children, the only in. Other, everyone else, I'm fine. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. But that's the choice I made. Right. right. So, but you, you, you 
you see that the, the tragic optimism is what you do. Mm. Tragic that leaves you without optimism mm -hmm. is when you isolate yourself and you right. make sure not to have any connection that, of meaning so that you never have to experience the pain again. The tragic optimism says, I may experience that pain again, mm -hmm. yeah. but because of it, I'm going to surround myself with even more meaningful, rewarding yeah. relationships. Okay, last question. There's a, you and I did that story on grief and the pandemic. Yes. Um, and in it, you said, you told me that your father used to say, there is laughter in hell. Yeah. That always stuck with me. But the idea that we talked about at the beginning of this relationship, joy and sorrow, relationships and grief, the flip side. So talk a little bit about that humor, lightness, and getting through tragedy. I mean, it's not always lightness. Sometimes it's very dark humor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, um, but seriously, he I, when he said it to me, I've told myself, duh, like, you know, <laughs> I said, you think we really managed to get up every morning and walk kilometers in the frost with newspaper around our feet to go work in the factory with, with a bowl of soup for the whole day, months on end, because we were in touch with our feelings? Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, humor saved us, you know, and it gave us a sense of mastery over what we were experiencing. It, 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 you become the owner of the narrative when you have humor. You mm -hmm. tell the story and you give it its twist and its meaning and its irony and its sarcasm, etc. And I just thought, of course. Yeah. You know, you, you went to bed and instead of saying good night, you, you know, somebody, you said, you know, are you feeling the feathers underneath your back when you were on a piece of wood? Mm. You know, <laughs> it, and then on and on like this. And then I saw, it's actually the title of a book, Laughter in Hell. Mm. And, you know, the, the place where I also learned it a lot is I was working with a group of uh, Chilean refugees mm. and we were, who had been in, in solitary confinement and tortured political prisoners for years. Here in New York, we worked with them through theater. And we played a whole scene of them in the cells. Mm. And then when they came to watch it, so they would tell us the story, we would transform it into a theatrical performance, and then we would play it in front of them. They basically said, and where is the humor? Mm -hmm. He said, you think we survived all of this because we were dead serious the whole time and weeping on ourselves and pity? No, you know, we had developed a whole morse on the wall and with, mm. in which we communicated through with each other, and it was a lot about humor. And... I think it's the piece that people don't often talk about because they think it's misplaced. You know, how can you bring in humor in the midst of tragedy? Yeah. Because it helps some of us, not all of us. You know, it really depends. Um, but that's the concept of laughter. Yeah. Esther, thank you for being with us. It's a pleasure. Esther, really, thank, thank you, you so much. Always a pleasure to spend some time with Esther. Indeed. Even in these sad days. Yes. Over the next week, we're going to take a break as a team in remembrance of Blakeney. On Thursday, you'll hear an episode she produced with comedian and her former yoga student, Mike Probiglia. And next week, we'll play you an episode of Esther Perel's podcast, Where Should We Begin? We'll be back on Thursday, August 17th with a new episode. Kara, let's read ourselves out. And listeners, please stick through till the end. Today's show was produced by Naeem Araza, Christian Castro-Rosell, Megan Burney, Megan Cunane, Fernando Aruda, Rick Kwan, and Andrea Lopez-Cruzado. With music by Isaac Jones, Sonia Herrero, and Carol Saburo. Thank you to all the people who helped care for Blakeney at the Brooklyn Hospital Center and at New York Presbyterian Wild Cornell Medical Center, including CCU nurses Suzanne, Heather, Michaela, Ophelia, and Wild Cornell doctors Daniel McDonald and Babak Navi, as well as Brian Schaff of the Brooklyn Hospital Center, and many, many more who provided exceptional care. And thanks also to Rashi DiStefano, Samantha Altschuler, Molly Four, Matthew Vosberg, Jennifer Kini Sendro, Scott Sendro, Katie Chandler, Jeffrey Sangrand, Bennett Carney, Justin Clark, Hani Studer, Hadi Khalazon, Altaf Per Muhammad, Elizabeth Place, Michael Clower, Carrie Chapelka, Nancy Kopek, Roger and Ann Chapelka, and many, many more. And of course, to Blakeney's parents, Linda Jaschik, 
and William Jarreau Schick Jr., also known as Jerry. And a very, very special thanks to, of course, Blake Nishek.